Please remain standing in honor of God's Word. We're continuing on in the Gospel of John. This morning we'll look at John chapter 9, verses 1 through 12. John chapter 9, 1 through 12. This is God's inspired Word. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he looks like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we thank you for this passage of Scripture that shows us that you open the eyes of the blind. Oh, Father, would you open our eyes this morning? Father, I pray that we would all have eyes to see, to see you in your glory, to see Jesus as the Savior of the world. May we have eyes to see so that we can sing praises to you. May we have eyes to see that we will not walk in darkness, but walk in the light. Father, may your word go forth this morning with great power, with the Holy Spirit, and full conviction. We ask these things boldly, in Christ's name, Amen. May be seated. The biblical writers are masters of the understatement. We will see that in this text more than once, but notice how this chapter begins. As he passed by. That seems innocent enough, innocuous enough, but I read that and I think God doesn't just pass by. (laughs) To me, that's like saying, yeah, there was a storm last night and a tornado passed by our house in the middle of the night. God doesn't just pass by without there being a tremendous effect that takes place in the wake of his passing. One example of this that I really enjoy is found in Luke 17, or excuse me, Luke 19. It's the story of the wee little man, Zacchaeus. 19.1 says, speaking of Jesus, he entered Jericho and was passing through comes into Jericho and his attention is just to pass 
right on through. Uh, but Jesus will not just pass right on through. Something is going to take place, and something dramatic does take place. He sees Zacchaeus way up in a sycamore fig tree. And Jesus looks up and he sees Zacchaeus. In verse 5, we read that Jesus says, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. Notice that Jesus says, hurry. Uh, there's no time to waste. And then he says, I must stay at your house today. Not I'd like to stay at your house today. Not can I stay at your house today. I must stay at your house. And he doesn't say sometime. He says, I must stay at your house today. And we don't know for sure, but reading between the lines, Nicodemus basically says, that's great, come right on over. Uh, reading between the lines, Jesus presents the Gospel and Nicodemus is born again. And you say, how do we know that? We know that for a couple of reasons because in verse 8, Nicodemus stands up and he says to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will restore it fourfold. And I, I love this. Um, as evangelicals, we often want the text to say something like, He repented of his sin, He put his faith in Jesus Christ, and He was saved. We, we like it spelled out like that. So we like a very clear, gospel-centered testimony. But more often than not, you do have that sometimes, but more often than not, what you have is saving faith presented by a changed life. What does Nicodemus, or excuse me, not Nicodemus, what does Zacchaeus do after talking to the Lord? Half my goods, right now I'm going to give to the poor. What does that say? He's letting go of his materialism. He's now thinking about those in need and he's more than happy to help out. And he wants to make reconciliation to those that he has defrauded. When he says, if I had defrauded anybody, and implied in that is, and I have, he's saying, now let me go and let me make it right. And many of us have had that experience. We became Christians and all of a sudden we became aware of something we did in the past and we said, i got to go back and i got to make it right. i got to correct that. Zacchaeus is changed. We know it because of his lifestyle. But we also know it because of what Jesus says in verse 9. Today, salvation has come to this house. Today, salvation has landed right here on Zacchaeus. He is now also a son of Abraham. His life has been transformed. And now we see why Jesus had to pass through Jericho. He wasn't just passing through Jericho. He was on a mission. A mission, a divine mission. And it ended up bringing salvation to Zacchaeus. God is always at work. Always at work. Uh, recently, someone asked me about the book of Esther. And they said, I heard that in the book of Esther... God's name is never mentioned. And I said, that's true. God's name is never mentioned in the book of Esther. And they were wondering, well, how can it be an inspired book? And I said, well, what's required for a book to be inspired of God? That it mentions the name of God? No, that it's inspired by the Holy Spirit to write it down. I said, the fascinating thing with Esther is that while God is nowhere mentioned, 
He is everywhere present. And I just I love that theme. And turning to Esther 5, you can follow along if you like. Um, let me give you just a little flavor of this. Just a little background. Uh, Haman hates the Jews. In particular, he hates Mordecai the Jew because Mordecai doesn't bow down before him and pray him proper homage and respect. Uh, so Haman wants to build a gallows 50 cubits high, according to Esther 5.14, so that he can hang Mordecai on the gallows and be rid of him. That's his plan. We read that in verse 14. Then his wife, Zerish, and all his friends said to him, Let the gallows, fifty cubits high, be made. And in the morning, now follow this very carefully, in the morning, tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it, then go joyfully with the king to his feast. The idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. Chapter 6 begins, On that night. It just so happens that on that night, the king couldn't sleep. He's restless. He's tossing and turning. He's wondering, how can I fall asleep? And he says, I know I'll have the book of memorial deeds read to me. And after a few chapters of that, I'll probably be able to sleep. Maybe some of you can relate. You have trouble sleeping. Get up, read for a little bit. So the chronicles were came and they were read before the king. Verse 2. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Githana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Azuerus. And the king said, What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. Hmm. So finally, just so happens on this night, he hears how in the past Mordecai saved his life, but he wasn't properly rewarded for this. This isn't right. He needs to be rewarded. So verse 4 says, And the king said, Who was in the court? So now it's, it's morning. So apparently the king's been up all night. So now it's in the morning. Who's in the court? And it just so happens that Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows. And if you know the story, the king says to Haman, what do you think should be done for the man whom the Lord wants to exalt? Haman thinks it's him. And he says, gives him all these suggestions. I won't go through all the details. And then the king says, that's a great idea, Haman. Why don't you do that for Mordecai? Wow, the book of Esther is just loaded with coincidences. Is it not? And you know that many unbelievers will say Christians pray and there's answers to prayer and they'll say it's just a coincidence. But as one archbishop noticed, it's amazing how many coincidences happen when God's people pray coincidences all the time. So, John begins, as he passed by. Because he didn't have anything better to do. No, as he passed by, 
because he is on a divine mission, where we read that he saw a man blind from birth. Uh, we don't know how Jesus or the disciples knew that this man was blind from birth. Uh, but what we do know is that he never saw the light of day. We know that he has lived his whole life in darkness. And I want you to remember that John is notorious for the double entendre. He loves to use double meaning. And he uses it again and again and again. We saw it earlier in chapter 3 when we're told that Nicodemus comes to Jesus and he comes by night. Meaning it was literally at night, but also meaning that Nicodemus is in the dark at this point. It is night physically. It is night spiritually. And John loves to combine those two. And we'll see that again in this passage a little later. But for now, just keep that in mind that John loves to do that. Now, in verse 2, the disciples asked Jesus a thorny theological question. Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind. Now, in their mind, there are only two options. Either the parents sinned or he sinned in the womb. Now, that might be kind of odd for us, but the Jews did believe that you could sin in the womb. Now, if I was teaching a logic class, this would be a great illustration of the logical fallacy called the fallacy of the false dilemma, or very simply, the either-or fallacy. You see, it never entered into the minds of the disciples that there could possibly be a third alternative. They just thought it's one way or the other. And by the way, it's good to keep this fallacy in mind because you see it everywhere. You really do, especially when it comes to politics. And they're trying to come up with a solution to a problem. And often it's presented as, well, we're either going to do this or that, like there's only two options. Uh, matter of fact, just last week, Michelle and I were going to the health club, listening to the radio, and, and someone called in. It was a Christian radio station. And this person said, as Christians, we're either going to make a lot of money or we're going to save souls. And I thought, those are the only two options? <laughs> uh, I could think of about ten options that combine those two and add to that. Um, so my logic students would have said, Professor, that's the logic of the false dilemma. And I would have said, you're right, that is. Uh, but it, it's everywhere. It's a common fallacy and the disciples fall into it. I also want you to notice that underlying this fallacy is the presupposition that all suffering, affliction, and pain is directly related to sin. These disciples think that there is a one-to-one -one direct correlation between sin and suffering, and that is not the case. And if any book teaches that very clearly, it's the book of Job. The book of Job tells us that there is such a thing as innocent suffering. Not that anybody is 100% perfectly 
innocent, but the book tells us very clearly that there's not a direct one-to-one correlation between sin and suffering. Job is suffering terribly because he is a righteous man and his friends, miserable counselors, all of them, are saying, Job, you're a wretched sinner. He's analyzing his life and he's saying, I'm not, I'm looking, I'm... I'm not deceived. I'm not. They're saying there must be sin in their life because that's why all this has come upon you. They just assume, like the disciples, there must be great sin in your life because there's great suffering in your life. Therefore, there's great sin in your life. It doesn't work that way. On the other hand, however, many Christians in our culture believe that there is never a connection between sin, and suffering. But there is. Now, here we have to be very careful to make a distinction between punishment and chastisement. God does not punish His children in the sense of bringing wrath upon them. 1 John 4, 17 and 18 talks about that. Perfect love casts out fear because fear has to do with judgment. And he's talking about the day of judgment. But Hebrews 12, 5 and following, that tells us that God disciplines those He loves. God chastises those Christians who get out of line. God spanks His children. We could say, like children in this church, or excuse me, parents in this church, spank their children. R.C. Sproul um, tells an illustration. He says that when he was growing up, he says his father was very scrupulous about the principle of tithing. And he says that his father, as a lay preacher, would frequently preach in the Methodist church about the biblical obligation to tithe. And he said that was passed on to the children. And R.C. Sproul says that when he was a child, when he got an allowance of 50 cents, His father saw to it that he brought a nickel and put it in the offering plate when it came by. When that allowance was raised to a dollar, he said his father saw to it that a dime was put in the offering plate when it came by. And he says that because of that, uh, when he became a Christian later in life, he said the transition to tithing was very easy for him because of the example that his father set for him. He mentions that in the 49th year of his father's life, A friend who had owned an automobile dealership was on the brink of bankruptcy. He says that since my father was a corporate bankruptcy accountant, he agreed to help this man with his problem. And he said that since this man was a good friend, he gave to him, not lent, but gave to him $10,000. And he said 50 years ago, $10,000 was a good sum of money. He went on to say that because he gave this gentleman money and was helping him out so much, his business started to fall off. And he says for the first time in his father's life, he didn't tithe. Sproul goes on to say, early in the next year, he suffered the first of three debilitating strokes that ultimately took his life. He could hardly speak. But I remember him saying to me, Son, I am convinced that God has afflicted me because I have failed to tithe. Spoke goes on to say, He went to his grave believing that. 
Sproul said at the time, I thought, surely God would not afflict my father because he wasn't scrupulous in tithing one year. He had been faithful his whole life. But then he said, God can and he does chastise his people when they are disobedient. Now, many of us think, well, isn't that an Old Testament principle? Uh, Just recently in my devotions, uh, I read about Miriam came against Moses, and because of that, God struck her on the spot with leprosy. She had to sit outside the camp for seven days before she could come back in. And then the ten spies, ten of the twelve spies who brought back a bad report, spread it among the people, called grumbling, caused grumbling and complaining in the midst. Because of that, because of that impact, they were struck dead with a plague. And then I read about Korah and others with him in a rebellion against Moses. And because of that rebellion, the ground opened up and swallowed the people. God punished them because of their sin. And I want you to know that it is everywhere in the Bible. This is what I read this morning in my devotional time. I read through the one-year Bible. Uh, I'm a little ahead. This This is March 12th. Um, this, this is what I read this morning. I, I don't know about you, but I just present this because it'd be interesting if I made a tally throughout the year how many times I read my Bible and when I finish, I'm trembling. I'm trembling because God's not playing games. I was reading about giving tithes to the Levites. And the text says, The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Levites and say to them, When you receive from the Israelites the tithe, I give to you as your inheritance. You must present a tithe of that tithe to the Lord's offering. A verse that I would use for pastors to say, yes, you benefit from the tithe of God's people, but make sure you also are tithing in return. Your offering will be reckoned to you as grain from the threshing floor or juice from the wine press. In this way, you also will present an offering to the Lord from all the tithes you receive from the Israelites. And then it goes on, and then 30 Say to the Levites, when you present the best part, it will be reckoned to you as the product of the threshing floor or the wine press. You and your thresholds may eat the rest of it anywhere, for it is your wages for your work at the tent of meeting. By presenting the best part of it, you will not be guilty in this matter. Then you will not defile the holy offerings of the Israelites, and you will not die. I... I read that and I'm like, God's telling the Levites, you're going to collect the tithes. Make sure you, in turn, give tithes so you don't die. Is, is that not sobering? That, that was sobering for me in my devotional time this morning. And once again, I was just reminded, God, God is serious. And by the way, in case you think this is an Old Testament concept, I want you to know that this is a biblical concept because you turn to the New Testament where we see the God of grace, supposedly, as if he wasn't a God of grace in the Old Testament. And we read about Ananias and Sapphira. Remember them in the book of Acts? Brought some money, donated it to the church. It's, it's there. That was a free will offering. They could give as much as they, as they want, but they lied. They said, yeah, we sold some property and this is all the money from the offering we give to the poor. They lied. And because of that lie, the Holy Spirit struck them dead. First the husband, then the wife. 1 Corinthians 11, uh, we read about the quote-unquote Lord's Supper that's taking place in the Corinthian church. And it can hardly be called the Lord's Supper because they're getting drunk. 
They're passing the communion wine around again and again and again. The rich people are gathering together over here in a nice comfortable room. The poor are over there somewhere out of the way. And Paul says you're, you're not recognizing the body of Christ. And then we're told that in the church, you can look it up, we're told that in the church some were sick and had fallen asleep because of their abuse of the Lord's Supper. God punished them. Christians. God is serious. In Galatians 6, 6, we read, One who is taught the Word must share all good things with the one who teaches. And I know that's self-serving, but I'll also mention that this is the first time I've mentioned this verse, I believe, in 13 years. But that's what it says. That's how God has organized them. Notice the very next verse. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. A man reaps what he sows. One who sows to please the flesh from the flesh will reap corruption, but the one who sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. If you can live however you want without there being consequences in this life, not just the judgments come, then God can be mocked. Beloved, God is not mocked. We reap what we sow. That is an Old Testament principle that Paul is pulling into the New Testament and laying down once again for the people of God. And he says, do not be deceived. God's not playing games. Now, I don't know about you, but I find this frightening. This kept me up at night this week thinking about this. God, God is serious. No wonder we're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We're the ones playing games. God is not playing games. This is a matter, often, of life and death. Often there is a connection between sin and suffering. But, coming back to our text, not here. Jesus' answer in verse 3 is very clear. It was not that this man sinned or his parents. Maybe here I should say we need to be very careful. On the outside, I don't think we should be the one saying this is happening because of sin. I think what we should do is look at our own lives and say, is this happening because of sin in our life? And suffering should cause us to fall on our faces, to confess our sin before God, to see if there is any wicked way within us. See if God is trying to get our attention. But we should be very careful from the outside like Job's friend saying, well, there must be sin in your life. We do not know that. It's not really for us to know. For the most part, it's none of our business. In this case, no one sinned. This has nothing to do with sin specifically. Of course, all suffering is generally because of sin. If the fall had never occurred... There wouldn't be any pain. There wouldn't be any sorrow, tornadoes, hurricanes. So in one sense, yes, all suffering is because of sin generally. But Jesus is talking about sin particularly. This is not a particular judgment for the sin of this man or his parents. Then what's the purpose of it? But that the works of God might be displayed in him. This happened 
for the good of this blind man and the glory of God. That's why it happened. There are basically two worldviews in the world. There's the atheistic, evolutionist worldview over here, which says there is no meaning, no purpose to life. And then there is the biblical view over here, which says there is meaning and there is purpose in the world. And it's either one way or the other. And I do not believe that I have fallen to that logical fallacy, the false dilemma. I really do believe that those are your two basic options. Yes, there are variations on those. But it basically comes down to the fact, is there meaning and purpose in suffering or not? Uh, Pastor Doug Wilson, a while back, was debating atheist Christopher Hitchens. And they went to different places. Uh, they went to a Christian school and they even went to a tavern and atheist gathering. All, all kinds of gatherings uh, talking about whether or not God existed. And at one point in this presentation, Christopher Hitchens, the atheist, was just kind of all up in arms over the suffering in the world and the tragedies that happened. And he was presenting outrage over this. And Doug Wilson said, crap happens, Christopher. (laughs) Only he used a different word. Uh, His expression began with S-H. Um, In an interview with uh, John Piper, Piper asked him about that expression and why he used it. He said, you normally use that kind of language. And he said, I don't use that kind of language. It doesn't even cross my mind. And if my children use that kind of language, uh, they will be spanked. And Doug Wilson said, it was not as though I was in the heat of the moment and I got upset and it slipped out. He said it was very thoughtful, very intentional. And he mentioned that what he was doing was trying to help Christopher Hitchens to see that according to his atheistic, evolutionist worldview, where we just happen to be here, where we're an accident, there's no rhyme, no reason, no meaning, no purpose... Things just happen. That's how it is, Christopher, according to your worldview. And if you think about it in the context, it's a great expression because it was a slam on Christopher Hitchens and he was taking his worldview, mentioning it bluntly so that he could understand what he's saying and throwing it back at him so that he could wrestle with it. Why the moral outrage, Christopher Hitchens? Why are you upset? The world just happens to be here. There's no design behind it. Why the outrage? There's no reason for the outrage. And he was trying to demonstrate that, and I believe he demonstrated that very well. And I think this is important because suffering is one thing, but meaningless suffering is another thing altogether. If, if we just suffer and it has no meaning, no purpose, that's just how life is. That, that is unbearable. The Christian, and many people think that the Christian have a problem with suffering. It's the non-Christian that has a problem. As Christians, yes, we have to explain suffering in this world and why God brings about. And people are entitled to that explanation. And we should have one ready. 
But at least our suffering has a purpose behind it. God is using it for our good and His glory. And that's very important. Exodus 4, you don't have to turn to it, but Moses is being called to go and deliver the Israelites. And and he says, I'm not a very good speaker. I stumble, I, I bumble. And the Lord says, who made man's mouth? Who makes him mute, blind? We could go right on down the list. Who makes him born handicapped? Down syndrome. Autistic. Is it not I, the Lord? And God has no problem in saying this is a result of sin. But on the other hand, you've got to put these two together. He also says, is it not I, the Lord? And Psalm 139 says the same thing. It says that the Lord God Almighty Himself knits together a baby in its mother's womb. God does that. And when that baby comes out, quote-unquote, not normal, according to our standards, God has purposes, glorious purposes, even if they're difficult purposes. And while this might not be comforting from one point of view, from another point of view, I think this is very comforting. God has a purpose. My nephew was killed at the age of 27. Does that have no purpose, no meaning? whatsoever. And here's where I want to say as Christians, we need to be very careful. And and I find that many Christians are actually deist. I've heard Christians on the radio that say, well, things just happen. It was There are accidents in the world. And, and I cringe. And, and some people want to say, well, this is Calvinism versus Arminianism. It's not. This is sovereignty versus deism. That kind of view goes beyond Arminianism. Even the old Arminians believed in the sovereignty of God. I think many don't understand that they have actually moved beyond Arminianism to deism, which believes that God is just a creator. He's created the world, wound it up like a clock, and then stepped back, and he lets things operate. And, of course, accidents happen, but he's not involved. His hands aren't in the mix, as it were. That's not biblical whatsoever. Calvinists and Arminians throughout church history have believed that God is sovereign and that He is intimately involved in the affairs of man. So that there is meaning and there is purpose. So I hope we see very clearly that there is a purpose here. This man is blind from birth for a purpose. This is not an accident. And this is not an exception. This is the rule. Jesus goes on to say, We must work the works of Him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. And I just, I just want to pause here for just a second and just say God has called us to work. God has a work for us to do. Notice that Jesus came to work. This is our opportunity to work to advance the kingdom of God. We're called to work. When we die, then retirement comes and we can bask in God's glory throughout all eternity. But now is an opportunity to work with the mind, the health, the gifts, the talents that God has given us. And then Jesus says, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Now that's very interesting. If you've been here for a while, you'll recall that earlier in John 8.12, Jesus said, another of the I am statements, I am the light of the world. Jesus brings that up again here. As long as I am in the world, 
I am the light of the world. Let me just remind you that there's a connection between light and salvation. Psalm 27.1 The Lord, that's what all capital letters, remember from last week, Yahweh is my light and my salvation. Those go together. Yahweh is my light and my salvation. And then when Jesus comes on the scene, we have this statement from the prophet Isaiah that's being fulfilled. The land in Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. So the light of Christ shines in the darkness, which also represents death. And Jesus Christ brings life, spiritual life. And that symbolism is very important. But the question is, why does he return to this theme, I am the light of the world? Because he's about to do a miracle that will demonstrate that he is the light of the world. And we'll see this again when we get to John 9, or excuse me, John 11. Jesus will say, I am the resurrection and the life. Anybody can say that, but not anyone can also say to a tomb of a dead man, Lazarus, come forth, demonstrating that he indeed is the resurrection and the life. So we have the same thing here. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And he says, I'm going to prove it because I'm going to shine into the darkness. And this isn't just physical light. This is spiritual light. Verse 6, having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud. You say, why does he do it that way? I don't really know. I'll give you a couple of guesses. Uh, one guess is that perhaps he's imitating um, what the Father did when He created man in the Garden of Eden when He fashioned together out of the dirt of the ground man. Perhaps He's imitating that. Uh, he takes mud, He puts it on the man's eyes, perhaps also because He's blind, so that this blind man could feel that Jesus was doing something with His eyes. And then when He says, go wash in the pool of Siloam, maybe he was thinking, well, he put mud all over my face. i got to wash it off now. I might as well go and wash it off where he told me to wash it off. I have nothing to lose. And then in verse 7, once again, we have this amazing understatement. So he went and washed and came back seeing. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I want to go, came back seeing? What do you mean he came back seeing? Don't you want more details? And he came back jumping up and down so I could see for the first time in my life. Look at the sky. That's what blue is. The grass, that's what green is. Wow, I could never imagine blue and green and look at all these other colors. I mean, don't you want more details? Tremendous understatement once again. <laughs> Verse 8 as well. I love the response here. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar a uh, blind man would join the other beggars asking for help. Uh, we're saying, 
Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. Others said, no, but it looks like him. So you know what they were thinking? No, that can't possibly be him. And then here, once, once again, I, just, I try to picture this in my mind's eye. He kept saying, not just he said, he kept saying, I am the man. I am the man. I am the man. I'm the man. It is me. You, you know, he must have been jumping out of his sandals with excitement. I, I am the man. It is me. Just excited as can be. I mean, can't hardly contain himself. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus, made mud, and anointed my eyes, and said to me, Go uh, to Salome and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. That's, that's what happened. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I, I don't know. Now all he knows is that some man called Jesus, he, he couldn't see him, knew his name, just told him these things, and, and now he could see. Now notice, uh, he wasn't seeking Jesus. He wasn't a quote-unquote seeker. Jesus was just passing by. He just happened to be there. It's one of these great biblical coincidences. He just happened to be there. Jesus picks this man out. Why, why this man? Why, why not the, the other beggar that was right next to him? All the beggars were usually together. Why, why this man? I don't know other than he was one of the elect. I will say that. But Jesus chose him. And his eyes are being opened. And, and we'll see next week that now that his eyes are opened, he's going to come to see who Jesus is. All he knows now is that he's able to see because of this man. When he's asked later, who is he? He says, uh, I, he must be a prophet. And then Jesus will come to him and say, do you know who the Son of Man is? And he says, tell me. And he says, the one who is speaking to you is he. And then we're told that he believed and he worshipped. And I think that's important because in the previous section we saw people believing, but they wanted to kill Jesus. They didn't want to worship. So John is letting us know that this belief here is a real belief because it's accompanied by worship. But I want to ask you this question. Um, and I love to think through doctrine, not just biblically, but then I, I like to say, okay, this is the biblical doctrine. This is my experience. These two come together. And I was thinking about my salvation once, once again, just kind of analyzing it again. Uh, before I talk about it, let me read this quote by Spurgeon. Spurgeon says, uh, born as all of us are by nature an Arminian, I still believe the old things I had heard continually from the pulpit and did not see the grace of God. When I was coming to Christ, I thought I was doing it all myself. And though I sought the Lord earnestly, I had no idea the Lord was seeking me. I can recall the very day and hour when first I received those truths in my own soul, when they were, as John Bunyan says, burnt into my heart as with a hot iron. One weekday when I was sitting in the house of God, I was not thinking about the preacher's sermon, for I did not believe it. Hopefully no one's saying that this morning. <laughs> but interesting, he's there. Uh, God is working with him. He says, the thought struck me. How did you come to be a Christian? And this is what I'm just going to do in a moment. How did you become a Christian? I sought the Lord. But how did you come to seek the Lord? The truth flashed across my mind in a moment. 
I should not have sought him unless there had been some previous influence on my mind to make me seek him. I prayed, thought I. But then I asked myself, how came I to pray? I was induced to pray by reading the scriptures. How came I to read the scriptures? I did read them, but what led me to do so? Then, in a moment, I saw that God was at the bottom of it all and that He was the author of my faith. And so the whole doctrine of grace opened up to me and from that doctrine I have not departed to this day. And I desire to make this my constant confession. I ascribe my change wholly to God. So again, I was thinking about my salvation, just kind of pondering it again. And for everybody, it's, it's different. I was, I think, about 19 at the time, and then I became 20, and then I became a Christian. And if you're younger, you probably don't know. Uh, but for those of you who came to Christ at a, at a later age, um, maybe you can think about your salvation. And I know what happened. I was 19 years old. I was partying, just living life, enjoying myself, working and waiting for the weekend. That was it. Um, I was not saying to myself, I wonder if God exists. I wonder if I should become more religious. Uh, I was not seeking God. I know I did not. God didn't enter my mind unless I was cursing. Um, then something would come out. And that, that, I was not seeking God. I, I really know that. You say, well, what happened? Well, what happened is my mother uh, said to me, uh, I want us to go to Willow Creek Community Church. She had become a Christian, praying for me, no doubt. I, okay, you know, I'm a good son, a rebellious son. I, I don't really want to get up on Sunday morning and, and go to church, but my mom wants me to go, so I'll go to church. Okay, you know. Driving out to church. Why are we driving all the way out here? We had another church that was 10 minutes away. And she just said, well, just be open-minded. Okay. I'll do it for you, Mom. Sitting there in church. Wasn't seeking God. I was just wondering how long. When was the service over? God grabbed a hold of me. Walked out of church. That was a good message. Been in church my whole, whole life, every single Sunday for the most part. First time in my life. So, wow, that's, that was a good message. Went back to following Sunday. It was though God said so clear and so compelling. What are you doing with your life? I'm not doing anything. I'm wasting my life. And then I began to think, what am I, what am I doing? Just wasting my life. And then I began seeking, quote unquote, then I would turn on Christian radio, Christian TV. Then I would open up the Bible. Then I was just as hungry as can be. But I know very clearly, looking back, that's not where it began. I was not seeking God. I was just blind, doing my own thing. God opened my eyes. And, and, and God really is gracious. I think about this. He opened my eyes slowly. Because if he had opened my eyes, boom, like this, I'd been like, oh, <laughs> am I such a rat? But he did slowly. <laughs> so I could slowly deal with the depth of my depravity. That was, that was overwhelming. But he slowly opened my eyes. Then I began to pray and read and finally poured out my heart to God, asking forgiveness and asking Jesus Christ to come into my life. 
But I just ask you, you know, and I, I don't, I'm not making experience uh, the final arbiter of how we understand our salvation. I'm just asking you, if you think, for those of you who can pinpoint clearly when God worked in your life, if you look back, can, can you see that you really were just like the blind man? You were just living your life. God passed by. For whatever reason, he noticed you, put his hand on you, and you were able to see. And many of us will be able to say like the blind man, I know this, once I was blind, but now I see. Uh, Next week, we're going to uh, continue on, and we're going to see that there is a spiritual connection Uh, between seeing with the physical eyes and the spiritual seeing. Here's how the passage closed. In 39, Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. And now we're switching to the spiritual. So He'll open the eyes of the blind, and He'll blind the eyes of those who can see. Uh, A good title for next week's message could be, Blinded by the light. Maybe some of you know that song. Manford Man's Earth Band. I know because I looked it up. I was thinking of a song. What was? Uh, so if you want to get ready for next week's passage, read through this text. Listen to Blinded by the Light. <laughs> and you'll be ready. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the work that You do in our lives. Father, if we can't relate to this blind man, perhaps we are still blind and uh, do not understand the condition that we were in. Father, if any this morning do not see who Jesus is, I would ask You to place Your hands upon their spiritual eyes. Help them to see. That Jesus Christ is the light of the world. That He is the Son of God. That He is the resurrection and the life. That He is the Good Shepherd. That He is the door. That He is the bread of life. That He is the way, the truth, and the life. And that no one comes to You, the Father, except through Him. May they see that unless they believe, that Jesus is God in the flesh. They will die in their sins. And Father, for those of us who see Jesus, may we understand why we see. Father, I really do ask that we would have a great appreciation for our salvation. May we see how dramatic it is. May we see that it is just as dramatic as the miracle in our text of Jesus opening the eyes of this blind man. It's just as dramatic. It's even more dramatic because opening our spiritual eyes has eternal significance. So thank you for this mighty work. We give all the glory to Christ for our salvation. We take none of the glory ourselves. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.